What's going on? And welcome to the midweek edition of the Pelicans podcast presented by SeatGeek. I'm Daniel Sallerson, alongside my co-host Jim Eikenhofer of Pelicans.com. We've made it to Wednesday here and pick number three for our NBA draft preview as the Pelicans hold the number 10 overall pick in next Thursday's NBA draft. The Cleveland Cavaliers sit at number three. And of course, we're going through each team one through nine, whether it's a broadcaster or a writer. Craig Ackerman joined us yesterday from the Houston Rockets. And Chris Fedor joins us today from Cleveland.com, who covers the Cavs and the NBA for that paper. Chris, I appreciate the time. Good to have you back, because we did have you on last year's draft preview. How are you? I'm doing great, guys. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Look, it, it gets uh, interesting after pick number one. We talked yesterday with Craig Ackerman about how the Rockets might be the domino as far as what other teams do. Um, when it comes to the Cleveland Cavaliers and number three, who, who are they eyeing or who do they think maybe the Rockets will, will have off the board and, and give them a chance to draft there at number three? It's interesting that you say that because, um, you know, the Cavs are trying to figure out the same thing, which direction are the Houston Rockets going to go in. And I think, you know, because they have a relatively new front office because they're in a situation where they're in a rebuild and they could probably just go best player available, which is a subjective term. Um, they're keeping a lot of teams around the NBA guessing at this point. Um, and I think the Cavs are still trying to figure out who Houston's going to go with at number two. But I think the easiest answer here, guys, is the Cavs will likely take whoever the Rockets don't take at number two. You know, if the Rockets go with Jalen Green, which is what the belief seems to be right now, then I think the Cavs would be thrilled and they would take Evan Mobley, the seven-footer from USC. If um, Houston goes with Mobley, at the second pick, then I think the Cavs would take Jalen Green, uh, somebody that they watched play in the G League bubble. He lit up the Canton Charge, um, the Cavs affiliate, in one of the G League games that general manager Kobe Altman was at. Um, and they need somebody like him who can uh, take some of the playmaking responsibilities off Colin Sexton, Darius Garland, who can go out, create um, for himself and for his teammates and um, can knock down some outside shots. Uh, it's something that the Cavs obviously lacked last year when they had one of the worst offenses in the NBA. Before I get to Jim, that brings me to my next point. We talk about these teams in the top five of the draft, and they talk about, you know, they really can't afford to look at, oh, we need a position player. They may just go best available because, you know, there's a lot of work to be done with these teams. But when you look at the Cavs, they have the backcourt of Darius Garland and Colin Sexton. I know you wrote about a week ago about potentially – having some suitors for Colin Sexton, if Jalen Green's available, does that change things a little bit from the Cavs perspective of maybe we go Jalen Green and one of those guys is on the block or even with Jalen Green, the Cavs are going to try to do everything they can to maybe keep Sexton for the long term. Yeah, I think it just creates options that they would have to consider. You know, I don't think they're in an off season where they're going to be forced into anything, whether that means forced into paying Colin Sexton, the rookie scale max or forced into, trading Colin Sexton or forced into overlooking somebody like Jalen Green because they have Colin and Darius already on the roster. I think they're willing and they have to be willing to explore everything at this point in time. And I think honestly, Jalen Green is different enough than Colin in his style and the way that he um, plays. You know, Colin is an attacker. He uses his speed and his quickness to get to the basket, get to his mid-range floater, Jalen Green is more, from people that I've talked to, a catch-and-shoot type of player. Uh, yeah, he has the athleticism to get to the rim, similar to Zach Levine. But, you know, 
um, having somebody out there in a three guard lineup that does something in a different kind of way than Colin Sexton and Darius Garland, I think could be valuable for the Cavs. The other thing, you know, he brings some size that Darius and Colin don't have. Both those guys that I talked about are six foot one. Um, there are limitations that come with that kind of backcourt. Jalen Green is six five, six six. He brings more length, more athleticism. Um, more defensive versatility, more size that they don't have, that if the Cavs felt like those guys could play together and they could use a three-guard lineup, I think it's something that they would obviously explore. Um, But I think if they go with Green and he's the guy at three, I don't think that means, okay, Colin has to go. Uh, It could mean that. It could mean that's the direction that the Cavs ultimately decide to go as they hedge against a really, really difficult financial decision with Sexton. But I don't think they're going to be forced into anything based on what um, happens in the draft. Chris, to, to kind of put things into context as far as the Cavs overall go, I know post-LeBron, I guess post-LeBron part two, the Cavs are kind of one of those teams that are off a lot of people's radars and maybe people aren't necessarily closely following them. Um, I thought it was interesting. I'm people that observed the team last year, they started out eight and seven. They had this two game sweep against Brooklyn where they played fantastic. And it was kind of like, man, maybe this team is going to be better than people think. Um, After that, they were 14 and 43. What do you think was, were some of the reasons why things turned around and why they were able to get off to such a hot start, but they weren't able to sustain it at all. It's funny that you talk about the Cavs being off the radar because they are, I was on a podcast the other day and somebody said, I'm really, really excited to talk about the Cavs. And I was like, wait a minute, you are? <laughs> <laughs> there aren't too many people that show that level of excitement to talk about the Cavs at this stage of their rebuild, but I'll take it. Um, you know, I, I think there are logical reasons for, for why the Cavs kind of fell off the way that they did. I wrote about this for this morning, actually. Um <laughs> Youth doesn't win in the NBA, and and the Cavs relied throughout the course of the season on their kids to carry a big bulk of the scoring load and the minute load. Uh, It wasn't the plan to have rookie Isaac Okoro lead the team in minutes. (laughs) You know what I mean? It wasn't the plan to have Darius Garland and Colin Sexton carry the load that they had to carry. But Larry Nance Jr. missed more games than he had throughout the course of his career in a season. Uh, Kevin Love lost his entire season because of a nagging calf injury that was suffered in the preseason opener. They traded JaVale McGee at the trade deadline. They decided to move on from Andre Drummond. Um, So there were natural things that happened throughout the course of the season, Um, a shift in mindset, a shift in the kinds of players that they were running out there on a nightly basis. Um, And Andre Drummond was a huge part of the Cavs hovering around the 500 mark at the quarter point of the season, guys. Um, And once Jared Allen was acquired, he became a hindrance. He wasn't the same effective player. Um, He wasn't in the same mental space. In a way, it seemed like he pouted. Um, And then the Cavs obviously decided to sit him down because he was becoming a hindrance. And they went from Andre Drummond, who was a walking double-double, who was a defensive player of the year candidate early on in the season. He was having that level of impact into Jared Allen, a 22-year-old center who, yes, is really, really talented, but he doesn't give you as much known 
comfort and stability as somebody like Andre who had been in the league for, you know, seven, eight years at that point in time. So I think there were a lot of things that played into it. I think at the end of the day, the Cavs didn't get enough from the vets that they were supposed to rely on to help them through and help them win games. You make a, a really good point about young teams don't win in the NBA. I think even more specifically, young teams don't defend. And I think that's something that we've seen in New Orleans as well the last couple of years. That it takes time. We, we just watched Milwaukee with the, what they did defensively where they have guys that have been in the league for a long time. And even in a short amount of time, they were able to kind of develop chemistry and cohesiveness as far as Drew Holiday being his, his first year there and a couple other guys that just um, joined the team this year. Um, one of the things that you said earlier, or pretty much everything you've mentioned so far to me makes it sound like this season coming up for the Cavs is much more about the long term than it is um, what necessarily how many wins they get this year. Is there is there any element, though, as far as fans and media in terms of being in the play in round? Is that something that's an important or at least competing for being in the race at the end of the season? Yeah, guys, I'll put it this way. In the first three years without LeBron the Cavs weren't in a position where they were chasing wins. They wanted to win. They, they tried to make moves to better themselves in that department. You know, they traded for Andre Drummond. They traded for JaVale McGee. Um, at the beginning of this rebuild, they signed Kevin Love to a contract extension that looks just awful right now. Um, so they were trying to do things that would help these young guys um, learn how to win, and it would help the Cavs pick up some wins but they weren't chasing wins. That wasn't the primary goal. Um, I think now that they're heading into year four, this was always the year, guys, where they were looking at, okay, now it's time to take a step forward in the win-loss column. Now it's time. Um, it doesn't mean that they're going to make all these win-now moves and they're going to try and shortcut this process. But they recognize in the front office and the coaching staff recognizes that as well it's time to win some games um, playing for lottery picks and, 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 and development of the young players um, that that's, that's something that is always going to be there, especially the development of the young players, but you, you have to start winning some games at this point in time, especially at this point in the rebuild, because these young guys can't develop bad habits. They need to learn how to win. They need to learn um, and see what that looks like at the NBA level. This will be the third straight year that the Cavs have a top five pick. What's your assessment of how uh, Okoro and, and Garland have developed so far in their brief careers with the Cavs? Yeah, I mean, I think the young core guys is good. Um, if you think about Colin Sexton, he was 18th in the NBA in scoring. And you could say all the things that you want to about Colin and all the flaws that he has. And he is one of the most polarizing players in the NBA. He's one of the most polarizing players that the Cavs have had over the last decade, decade plus. Um, but he rolls out of bed and he gets you 20 and he does it efficiently. And I don't think that's something that you can just downplay. Um, so he was 18th in the NBA in scoring. Darius Garland got three votes for most improved player. Um, as a rookie, he looked lost. He looked out of place. He didn't look like he was worthy of the number five pick. He made big time strides in his sophomore year where there are people inside the organization believing that he is the best, most important young player that they have currently. Uh, Jared Allen looks like one of the best young centers in the NBA. The Cavs have a decision to make with his restricted free agency, but all indications that I have is that they're willing to match anything that he gets offered and they consider him 
part of this young core. And Isaac Okoro, um, despite not having a full off season, despite all the things that he dealt with as a rookie, he was guarding the opponent's best player on a nightly basis. And he handled that well, and he got better as the season went on. So the core is good, but I think they're missing the piece that you build around. The Zion, the Ja Morant, the Trey Young, the Luka Doncic. The good news for the Cavs is they haven't had the lottery luck in the past three years. Now they've had it, and now they're positioned to get the guy the guy that they can actually build this franchise around at number three. And I think once they get that, um, less will be asked of Isaac and Darius and Colin. And I think these guys in the hierarchy of what they should be on a playoff contending team or a play in contending team will actually come together and make a lot more sense. Like you can't build it around Darius Garland or Colin Sexton, in my opinion. You can build this thing around either Jalen Green or Evan Mobley. And then Darius can become the number two in this. And Colin Sexton, the three, and Jared Allen, the four. Not in terms of position, but in terms of hierarchy and importance moving forward. Chris, before I let you go, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you were one of the few reporters that traveled last season covering the Cavs during the pandemic. So I just wanted to know from your perspective, going to these arenas and dealing with the the COVID process and not having a lot of fans in the, in these arenas, how was it like for you covering a team in, in that way? Yeah, it was different. <laughs> we'll put it that way. You know, I, I feel like we all, the collective, we lost a, a sense of, of human interaction with these guys and, and some of the stories that we probably would have been able to do by being in the locker room and talking to these guys face to face. We weren't able to do, I feel like, um, the NBA did the best they could. These teams did the best they could, but it's just not the same. It's not the same being in the arena. It's funny because my editor said at one point during the season, said, Chris, I feel like you're writing as if you're in a library. I said, <laughs> well, <laughs> I kind of was, <laughs> there was nobody else in there to give me that juice, that excitement. To, to feel the moment. You could see these things playing out, these great plays that these young guys were making for the Cavs or for the other team that they were playing against, but, but it just wasn't the same. You didn't have that atmosphere. You didn't have that environment. And you could see it. You could see it, guys, in the NBA Finals, what it was like in Milwaukee, what it was like in Phoenix, and what that did for those respective teams. Um, it's unquantifiable, to be perfectly honest with you. So I enjoyed it because I still think there's a value in being there and seeing some things that you can't see on TV. Um, I bring up the example, you know, there was a game in Portland. I think it was either January or February. It was um, the game before the Cavs actually decided to sit down Andre. You know, had I not been there, honestly, I don't know if anybody would have seen him like disengage from the team and like shun away some of the coaches that were trying to talk to him. And, and it was the day after that. And, and after that game, I asked JB Bickerstaff about it. And I asked some of the players about it. And I asked Andre about it himself. And he was talking about how difficult it was. Um, and it was the next day that it came out that the Cavs were like, all right, we're going to sit him down and we're going to work to find a trade or a buyout. Um, if I wasn't there, I'd, I don't think as a reporter, I would have seen that. 
and and me being there, I was able to see some of those kinds of interactions throughout the course um, of this season that that maybe TV doesn't always pick up on. Yeah, I think as I think Jim will agree with this as as us members of the media, we definitely miss the you know on the court in the arena feel definitely for road games as we're sitting and watching it from a monitor that you definitely lose a lot of what you gain from it, including those, you know, getting the sights on the sidelines and hearing the coaches interact and things of that nature. So hopefully we're all back in arenas next year and hopefully we can see you in person, Chris, but I really appreciate your time today. Um, enjoy the draft next week and we'll talk to you down the line. You got it guys. Sounds good. Appreciate it as always. All right. Chris Fedor who covers the Cavs in the NBA for cleveland.com. Chris, real quick, how can folks follow you on Twitter? Yeah, it's just my name. It's nice and easy. Chris Fedor, and the last name is spelled F-E-D-O-R. All right, Chris. So hopefully we're not talking about the Cavs in the lottery next year, and hopefully the Pelicans as well. So uh, we'll talk to you down the line. Thanks again. You got it, guys. All right, good stuff here as we wrap up day number three of our Pelicans podcast, our NBA draft preview again next Thursday. It will be the NBA draft at 7 p.m. Central Time. We'll have a special NBA draft show on the radio ESPN New Orleans with our good friends there at the flagship station, Gus Cattengale, Todd Graff, and he will be out on location. And once again, I'll be stuck with Jim Ike and offering our Smoothie King Center studios, just like our post-game shows. Um, it'll certainly be a lot of fun to give you all a local perspective on what the Pelicans will do and what the rest of the NBA will do as well. But Jim, uh, obviously last night, the 2020-21 season officially came to an end. Hard to believe we're saying that on July 21st with the Milwaukee Bucks winning the NBA championship. And I think everyone can relate to this, Jim, especially here in New Orleans, how nice it is to see a team like Milwaukee win it all. And we say a team like Milwaukee, a small market team, a team that's superstar, could have had the option of maybe going somewhere else after the rookie contract and said, I want to win it all here in Milwaukee. He talked about that last night. And it's just kind of good to see for teams like New Orleans. I think it gives them a little bit of hope that um, this recipe can certainly happen with other organizations. I hope so. I mean, I think, like you said, there are a lot of people in New Orleans, I think, that are very happy that Milwaukee won. Um, if there was an Eastern Conference team for people around here, maybe that they rooted for and they wanted to see do wanted to see do well, at least this season, maybe not when the draft picks start conveying to New Orleans. But right. for now, they're happy with them being a success, successful team. Um, so Giannis's story is great. I mean, even going back to his childhood and how his family – how he immigrated here when he came over to play in the NBA. I mean, it's amazing. It, it, there's got to be a movie or a, a, a long book about his life story that would be incredible to read about because it's really not something that you can com compare to too many other people. So I love that aspect of it. I love his attitude as well. It, it just seems like he's a very unselfish guy. And as people were tweeting about last night, including myself, I think he's very unique. He has kind of a, and I say this in the best possible way, he has kind of a naive um, perspective on things that, for example, in the all-star game, when it was in new Orleans, he was, he couldn't believe why everyone was surprised that he was playing hard and he was competing. He doesn't have the, the same kind of, um, I don't know if jaded is the right word of, of maybe people that have been here their whole lives and kind of expect certain things and just have a certain approach to the way that we go about things here. And he's, I remember he tweeted a few years ago about how, how he was excited about trying a smoothie and yeah. it was one of those funny, uh, funny anecdotes, but um, so it's, it's great. And I, we've talked about before how entertaining the playoffs were this year and the end result was great as well. I mean, Phoenix made it to the finals after not being in the playoffs last year. So as kind of you referenced, I hope 
what happened this year gives people and more teams across the league hope that you can win a championship, even if you're from a small market. And even if you don't have this masterminded plan to bring superstars together, you can still win a championship. And that's happened, I think, really two out of the last three years in the league. Yeah, absolutely. And we circle it back to the NBA draft and we talk about the importance of these nights and it may not be important come next Thursday. And we talk about what pick the Pelicans have or some teams, but Giannis was drafted 13th overall. That means 12 teams passed up on him. Chris Middleton was a second round pick. You also had Nikola Jokic being the first second rounder to win the MVP this season. And then Drew Holiday wasn't a high first round pick as well. So when we talk about depths of drafts and, you know, what pieces you might find, you just never know what pieces you might find later on in the draft and how they correlate to your organization and how you can win an NBA championship with those pieces. Sure. And the Pelicans, as we know, have four second round picks this year. We have no idea how they're going to use them. I mean, it's probably not very likely that they'll draft four guys and four of those, those all four of those players will be on the roster this year. But I mean, it gives you the opportunity to take a bunch of swings and, and, potentially, you know, maybe you can find somebody, I mean, it might be a little unrealistic to say, let's try to find Jokic or let's find, try to find Chris Middleton, but maybe you can find a guy or two that can make a big impact and somebody that's kind of under the radar. I remember Malcolm Brogdon is another guy that was drafted pretty late and ended up winning rookie of the year. So there's no doubt that, uh, you know, the draft is not an exact science and you, you don't necessarily know if you're going to get a better player in the top 10 that you're going to get in the second round some years. So um, we'll see what happens, but you know, another part I think about Milwaukee that I think is great, not just the way that they're their top of their roster is that we, you just, we just touched on as far as when those guys were drafted, but just like Toronto to me in 2019, they seized on the opportunity to, they weren't a prohibitive favorite. They had a chance to win and they took advantage of it. Um, I, I like that as well, that, I feel like we we have this discussion sometimes in the NBA about teams that get knocked out in the first round that, oh, they're stuck there. They're never going to get be able to move off of that, which is, I think was definitely what was said about Toronto for a while there. They were able to jump up and win a championship. And I think Milwaukee, even midway through the playoffs this year, when they were down 2-0 to Brooklyn in the second round, I think a lot of people already started saying, you know, this team's never going to advance past, you know, being a team that's good in the regular season, but is going to get knocked out in the playoffs. So, that was another part that I really enjoyed that they were able to kind of disprove that, that they weren't a team that just had, had kind of a limited ceiling and they were able to break through and, and obviously win their first championship in 50 years. So congrats uh, for the uh, Milwaukee Bucks on their championship last night. And now we officially move on to the 2021, 22 season. And that starts with next Thursday's NBA draft. We continue tomorrow with the Toronto Raptors at pick number four. And we wrap up the week with Dante Marcatelli of the Orlando Magic TV crew, and he'll help us with pick number five and also pick number eight with the Magic having two picks in the top ten leading up to next week. Um, we'll fill in the other gaps with the Golden State Warriors, the Sacramento Kings, um, and, of course, the New Orleans Pelicans on Thursday. Big thanks to Chris Fedor from Cleveland.com for coming on, and, of course, big thanks to Jim Eichenhofer for coming on. Follow his work on Twitter at Jim underscore Eichenhofer as he continues with his draft preview stuff. Um, throughout the rest of this week and next week on pelicans.com and also be on the lookout probably in the next few days um, with a new coach for the new orleans pelicans we'll have plenty of coverage on that as well until tomorrow thanks for listening to the pelicans podcast presented by seat